0: Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by guest co-host, Grant. Welcome, Grant.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm so happy to have you here. We have a a very interesting opera by a composer that you and I have discussed before, Monteverdi.
1: The Green Mountain composer.
0: (laughs) I suppose we could translate it that way. We previously discussed his Orfeo in episode 85. And today we are going to discuss his opera based on the odyssey, Il Ritorno d'Ulysses in Patria. I think I'll probably try to just stick to English. The return of Ulysses to his homeland.
1: And fair warning to everybody, because this is going through several languages, (laughs) we are probably going to be a little imprecise. We'll probably use English sounding words Italian sounding words. We'll use the Greek and Roman names of gods. We'll try our level best to be consistent, (laughs) but we (laughs) beg your uh, patience and forgiveness.
0: Yes, thank you. (laughs) Disclaimer. Before we jump into the story itself, I just want to speak about Claudio Monteverdi. He is absolutely essential if you talk about the early history of opera. He didn't write the first opera, but he did write the oldest opera, that's still in the repertoire. That's the one we spoke about earlier on that, episode 85, L'Orfeo, the story of Orpheus in Eurydice.
1: Available wherever podcasts can be found.
0: (laughs) He wrote quite a number of other operas as well, but not many of them survive to be with us to this day. In fact, only three of them survive. And this one is the least commonly performed. L'Orfeo, the one we spoke about previously, was produced in 1607. This one is not produced until 1640, and it premieres in Venice when he is 73 years old. Wow. I know, it's it's impressive, right?
1: That's really impressive.
0: He writes yet another one that we still have, the coronation of Popea, based on Roman history, And people oftentimes hold that up as his great masterpiece. And we're very grateful to still have that one. And that one is performed with some frequency. And you and I'll have to get around to that one of these days. (laughs) But quick biographical sketch of Monteverdi. He's born in Cremona, 1567. When he's about 23, Monteverdi moves to Mantua because he has been given a position by the grand duke vincenzo gonzaga as a performing musician there he's already a proficient composer he's been composing since the age of 15 and by 1602 he's elevated to the maestro di capella he's in charge of the the choir it's a very elevated position of the ducal chapel which again very elevated position it's it, it's always going to be the most serious positions are going to be positions within the church and he achieves that position but just because you have a position in the church and that's where you're going to earn your steady work doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to write secular music as well and that's exactly what monteverdi did at this time prior to this time and continuing on monteverdi is a madrigalist and madrigals will figure throughout his life. We'll hear echoes of some madrigal sounding works in this particular opera as well. And they're a dominant form of music for the century preceding this, and Monteverdi is a master of that.
1: I love the madrigals. Are we going to talk about Bruno?
0: No. (laughs) So he's in Mantua. (laughs) He's doing great feeling a little restricted and feeling a bit like he's been abused. He's a bit of a hired hand. He's not paid. Really, he's not paid any more than one of the Duke's many, many archers. And he complains about this in some of his letters that we still have copies of. The old Duke dies not long after that. He's dismissed, but Venice, Venice, a city with ambition. As soon as there's an opening, he is hired as the Maestro di Capella in St. Mark's Cathedral and Venice has gotten a real coup by hiring Monteverdi, and it is in Venice, as I mentioned earlier, where this opera is performed. That's probably enough of the background on Monteverdi to start with. Well, Grant, as I mentioned before, the earliest of his operas, 1607, was Orpheus, and we did do that podcast on Orpheus, And it's a good one that he started with because it is so central to the history of opera. So many composers wrote operas about this myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Could you just remind us why this myth was so important to the history of opera?
1: Orpheus is the great musician in Greek mythology. He is a musician whose music is so powerful that he's able to charm his way into death to attempt to rescue his beloved and he almost almost pulls it off and in some versions they give him the happy ending because it seems like he (laughs) kind of earned it so orpheus is beloved by composers in the same way that the oscars love movies about hollywood right that's good
0: well these classical themes continue to be interesting even if it's not orpheus specifically. The Odyssey is still, I would argue, a classical topic. It's it's human, but it's not everyday people. And that's something that Monteverdi can embrace. It's still appropriate for opera. It still feels okay, but it's something where he can really sink his teeth into the human emotions.
1: And I was thinking about this when you were talking about how he was doing both secular and sacred music. And This is really interesting in the way that it straddles the line. It is ostensibly secular music. It is about a pagan mythology that is not believed by any of his presumed listeners. Right. And yet it is deep and rich in, in several cases, very explicitly Christian theological themes. Which is very much the same case as with Orfeo, uh, the Orpheus story retold in very much the same way.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. You're going to have to point that out to us as we go along with this presentation of this story.
1: I'll do my best.
0: We're counting on you.
1: <laughs> We're Uh-oh. counting on you. <laughs>
0: well, let's just take a moment to talk about Venice, this city of the premiere in 1640. Interestingly, as opposed to Orpheus, which was a court opera, we spoke on that or the other show about how this was just a... A small not even the biggest room in the court at Mantua, which was where Orfeo was presented. This opera was presented in a theater with a ticket-buying public, and that doesn't seem very earth-shaking to us today. But it was only three years earlier in 1637 that the very first public opera house opened in Venice. And some say that rather than looking back to 1600 with jacobo perry and considering that to be the birth of opera when you had all these intellectuals looking back to ancient greece and how music influenced the way the greeks presented drama etc cetera, etc cetera, which is a, a discussion that we had previously some will argue that no you should really look at 1637 as the actual birth of commercial opera, which is honestly the way we experience opera now. We expect people to buy tickets in some fashion to experience opera.
1: Yeah. It takes place in this moment where people are exploring how artists and art is compensated. Is it through a traditional patronage system where wealthy donors, benefactors, governments are paying for things to be done or is it through sales to a ticket buying public and the funny thing of course is in opera anyway that has never fully been resolved opera still in many ways depends (laughs) on the largesse of wealthy donors and aficionados
0: right and don't get me wrong it was it was hybrid then as well it was wealthy families who were subsidi I shouldn't even say subsidizing, who were owning these houses, who who these theaters were being built or or theaters were being renovated to become opera houses, courtesy of these wealthy families who wanted to show off that they could could make this possible. But it was part of of Venice's self-image that they could put on these grand entertainments, because of course, these entertainments were happening during a time of great festivities. So this 1637 mark is huge because it wasn't like there was a one-off, that there was an opera. It really was the start of something big. This first opera occurs in that year, but there were other operas that year, other opera houses. In a very short period of time, multiple theaters are opening. And in fact, it was in 1640, earlier in the year, that Monteverdi revives another one of his operas that he had actually written just a year after L'Orfeo in 1608. He revives that opera. It's lost to us in history. We don't have the score. Um, and, well, we do have one piece of the score, The Lament. The opera was *Arianna*, which is um, Ariadne from the Ariadne story, where Ariadne and Theseus, the story from the Greek mythology, where they she helps Theseus to escape the Minotaur and the terrors there and essentially helps him get back to his kingdom, but he leaves her on the island of Naxos. And, and the, the, the piece of that opera that remains is her lament when she's dumped off on this island of Naxos. And uh, that remains, and that's, that's frequently performed and much beloved. But that opera, he revives it before this opera that we're going to talk about today based on the Odyssey, he sort of tests the waters and he inaugurates one of the new theaters by one of the wealthy families by presenting a reworked version, a more grander more spectacular version of his Ariadne story and it's very successful. And then we get, a little bit later in the season, Il Ritorno Dullis in Patria, the return of Ulysses to his homeland.
1: And if you wanted to know more about the Ariadne of Naxos story, is there any place that you could go to find out?
0: <laughs> well, we do have a couple of times where we talk about the Strauss version of Ariadne auf Naxos, which is complicated and wonderful. <laughs> well, Grant, I mentioned this season where these entertainments are held because the theaters are not operating all year long, and it's not the same as our opera seasons In this country, which are different from city to city, but roughly during the school year, unless it's a summer opera series, it's during the carnival season. What is carnival season? And why is that when operas might happen? Or theater in general, for that matter?
1: So carnival is kind of a hard thing to pin down, because Mm. some version of it exists in most Catholic or even nominally Catholic countries. It is originally is the festival that is leading us up into Lent, uh, Mardi Gras, and all that. And in some countries, this is celebrated with parades and Saturnalia-style inversions of ordinary life. And in some places, it is celebrated with festivals. And so in Venice in this time, we're talking about the time period that goes basically from right after Christmas to what we would call Shrove Tuesday or Mardi Gras, the the day before the penitential season of Lent is entered in the Christian tradition broadly, but in the Catholic tradition in particular, Lent is marked by fasting and sacrifice the pop culture version of this being what are you giving up for lent but traditionally refraining from certain foods and uh, activities and that's all leading up to easter the day that christians celebrate the the resurrection of christ so you've got this whole season of the year going from christmas celebrating christ's birth to easter celebrating the resurrection and There is the penitential season, the season where people think about the things that separate them from God, sin, death, obsessions, vanity, etc. And prior to that, there is this season of joy and thanksgiving and having a great deal of fun and luxuriating in the good things of the world. And what better time is there to enjoy opera?
0: Even today, if you go to Venice, you see decorations and masks, and the th- the theater itself is part of what Venice is known for, all of these shows. And so here we are in Venice during the carnival season. Why Venice? Why, why Grant, do you think that Venice is where commercial opera is born?
1: Venice is a, just a really interesting city in history it's Mm. actually starting to decline at this point. Basically, the fortunes of Venice are in inverse of whoever happened to hold Constantinople at the time.
0: Oh, interesting. Why Constantinople?
1: Constantinople being the city that we now call Istanbul. And basically it's controlling the Bosporus is a really good way of being the preeminent naval power in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that was kind of Venice's niche that it fit into. Trade routes. First when the Byzantines declined and then later when the Ottomans started rising. And so this is as the Ottomans are really starting to come into their power and Venice no longer has, yeah, those trade routes, no longer has that, that dominance.
0: And Venice's wealth is entirely based on trade.
1: Yes, it's a, it's a maritime place and a maritime culture and it actually develops this really fascinating and unique culture as a place that is straddling the line between an old-fashioned aristocracy and a modern mercantile state where both of these things coexist and so it makes sense that we find that same kind of fusion of the old aristocratic mode where patronage is paid and the newer commercial mode where people who have made a great deal of money for themselves are able to spend expendable income on luxurious entertainment.
0: Mm. And also, Venice is a bit of of a tourist destination during this carnival season. It has this draw for people because it has all these entertainments and visiting troops
1: And because it is a hub of trade and it's connected with the rest of the world in a Mm -hmm. way that few places were at the time.
0: Right. I've read that its population could double during the carnival season, that that's where people want to go to, to enjoy this celebratory atmosphere. And the political structure permitted that. It didn't clamp down on these sorts of celebrations. It encouraged them. The mercantile attitude, the commercial attitude allowed for it and encouraged it. And so commercial opera was just a piece of of that whole mentality and ethos. And someone like Monteverdi was perfectly positioned to take advantage of it. Yes. And I'll just note that during this long introduction, the music that I've been playing underneath is not as it usually is from our opera. I'm playing some of Monteverdi's madrigals performed by members of the Glyndebourne Opera Chorus under the direction of Raymond Leppard. Madrigals being the dominant form of music in the century preceding this opera, the return of Ulysses to his homeland. Monteverdi was a master of madrigals. These little miniatures had the ability to express human emotion and they typically consisted of four or five unaccompanied solo voices. They were secular in nature, typically based on poetry, a distilled expression of emotion. Hmm. And back to Monteverdi. With all of this activity in Venice and this growth of opera, he must have been interested. Because when he first moved to Venice, And there wasn't really an opera culture in venice he maintained his contacts with mantua so he could still write opera yeah but as opera is growing in venice commercial opera he starts to become interested but he even needs a little bit more of a push and he gets it from one giacomo bodoro the man who is the librettist of the opera that we're going to be discussing today bodoro composes his libretto and in one of the letters that he writes to monteverdi very sweet talking fellow he is he tells monteverdi that he created this libretto to stimulate the creative imagination of your lordship and he compares monteverdi's compositions to those of others at the time and everyone respected monteverdi the librettist Badaro writes where the warmth of human emotion is concerned there is all the difference between a painting of the sun and the sun itself quite a sweet talker
1: I feel like we've heard this story before about librettists who want opera people to make things and write librettos for them and sweet talk them have we heard that before yes familiar. you
0: have and I'm going to tell you who the comparison is often made between this in his 70s writing these two very successful still in the repertoire operas and Verdi hmm. Boito is hired by the publisher to lure Verdi back into writing operas and that's how <laughs> where we get Otello and then ultimately Falstaff after that.
1: That's how they trick you.
0: Yeah, they, you know, write something interesting. But in Monteverdi's case, he needed a libretto that was going to spur his imagination. And obviously this did. Now, Grant, to our opera, Il Ritorno in Patria, Monteverdi's The Return of Ulysses to His Homeland. How does this opera start?
1: It starts with a prologue. And I will acknowledge, it's a weird prologue.
0: Our other opera started, Orfeo started with a prologue. Music, personified.
1: And in this case, we've got the personifications of human frailty, Mm. time, love, and fortune. (laughs) Yes. And they have this little back and forth where basically human frailty is acknowledging dependence on these things and that humanity is at the whims of time of fortune and of love it is a small thing easily blown away like dust in the wind so that's an interesting lead in to our story (laughs) a little taste of that
0: listening to Opera for Everyone and we are listening to a mid-17th century opera by that great composer Claudio Monteverdi, The Return of Ulysses to His Homeland. And we have just listened to the first piece of music from the opera, The Prologue, wherein human frailty, that plaintive voice that we heard, that countertenor in the beginning, is being essentially mocked by these other three characters. Grant, the prologue here, we don't see these characters again, by the way. What purpose does it serve in this opera?
1: It's a really good question. It's (laughs) a strange piece. It's, to some extent, strange, even in its context. But to some extent, it's just that we're not used to this kind of prologue. Mm. We encounter it when we, for instance, read Shakespeare. And we see this introductory prologue that lays out themes, right? but we don't usually do this in our own modern way of doing things. And it's worth remembering that Monteverdi is roughly a contemporary with Shakespeare.
0: A little bit later, this would be, right? 1640, yes. this is premiering.
1: It doesn't hurt that Monteverde lives substantially longer than Shakespeare does.
0: Right. He's pretty much a contemporary in terms of the fact that he's born just three years after Shakespeare.
1: Right. Because Shakespeare dies in 1616. He doesn't live into his mid-70s and continuously produce work through that. Mm. So the prologue is setting out themes that are going to be in this story. And chief among them is the frailty of human beings. The degree to which human beings are tossed around by age, by love, and by fortune. And all three of those things are important in the way that they control and overpower the various characters. And we will come back to those concepts again and again.
0: Well, Grant, one of the many benefits of inviting you to discuss this opera with me was that I didn't have to reread the Odyssey. I gave you that task. (laughs) <laughs> so, could you remind me? Is there a prologue? Comic to relief
1: in o- ancient languages. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't remember. It, does the Odyssey itself have a prologue? Kind of. The short answer is no, it doesn't. But the longer answer is the first four books of the Odyssey. The Odyssey is divided into twenty-four books, and the first four books of the Odyssey all take place following Telemachus. Telemachus is. Odysseus' son. Right. And he travels around and he is trying his to. Yeah. He's trying to <laughs> resolve this problem. He's <laughs> trying to find his father. He meets with some of the great heroes of the Trojan War. He mm-hmm. tries in every way to figure out what is to be done about the fact that his house has been overtaken by the suitors. He effectively goes and tries to solve the problem himself. And in all of these conversations, Odysseus is built up. He's built up as this crazy, powerful, wily warrior. And this is all to lead us to when we first encounter Odysseus in Book 5. And he is on a rock, crying, forlorn, and trapped.
0: It's interesting. The name of this opera, The Return of... Odysseus to his homeland is letting us know this is not the entire Odyssey. This libretto explicitly is based on a portion of the Odyssey, books 13 through 23. And so this is not going to even address the front of the Odyssey, much less Odysseus's role in the Iliad. Correct. What makes him a hero there. But... But I imagine the people who would have gone to see this opera when it was being shown originally, and maybe even subsequently in other centuries, would be expected to know these classical works.
1: Yes, this is the classic of classics. It's actually pre-classic. <laughs> and it's known to anybody who's got any knowledge of stories in this time. It is foundational in a way that is hard for us to even describe and it's been made into many movies and plays in our own time often focusing on these exact parts the triumphal return home of Odysseus I think of the wind in the willows which has a scene or a sequence the wind in the willows yes it has a whole sequence that's based off of this story where they return to they return to Mr. Toad's home and drive out the weasels and stoats that have infested it
0: Ha huh. I hadn't actually connected those. I It's been a quite a long time since I've read Wind in the Willows as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's interesting that it doesn't try to tell the whole story. And yet, structurally, the opera actually mimics that pattern. Where we don't start out with Odysseus or Ulysses. We start out with the people left back home. And the focus in this case is squarely on Penelope.
0: Right. So after our prologue, the first place that we see is the palace. And the first person we see is Penelope. And we hear her lament. To Monteverdi's opera, The Return of Ulysses to His Homeland. And that sad, sad voice, that was Penelope, the faithful, long-suffering, patient wife of our long-missing hero, Ulysses, Odysseus, Ulysses.
1: And for those of you keeping track of your pop culture references, this is where I reference the TV show Lost, where you also have a Penelope who is searching for her lost-at-sea love.
0: Ah, oh, Lost. Another bit of culture that I haven't thought of in some number of years. (laughs) Have you been watching that recently?
1: No, it just, I always, when I see the thing about Penelope, I always think about that moment in Lost where they do Uh, Not Penny's Boat. Oh, interesting. These stories, they echo. They echo Mm. in ways that sometimes just weave into the fabric of how we think about the world. And... There are plenty of very explicit references, as in Wind in the Willows are lost, but there are a lot of versions of this story that aren't meant as explicit references. I don't think the John Wick story is explicitly meant as a evocation <laughs> of the Odyssey, but I think a world where the Odyssey hadn't been written, the John Wick story would look a little different.
0: Right. Well, I suppose there's a little bit of this, and we won't spend a long time talking about this, the hero's journey if you want to do the whole Joseph Campbell study as well I mean that's another that's another route to go down but all right Penelope she is a sad lady (laughs) and she beautifully expresses that here and one of the things that's very interesting not being an Italian speaker but having a libretto to hand I can tell you she is not repeating over and over again the same words. She's expressing a lot of feelings, but she's expressing them in different words about her concerns about her husband being across the sea. She's waiting for his return. And that fortune has just frozen. The wheel of time is no longer moving for her and that she has to bear so much And she's doing it, but just doesn't know how much longer she can possibly continue with it.
1: So we've got fortune, love, and time, and we've just barely started the first bit of Act One.
0: Right. And here she is. And her song is punctuated briefly by a sympathetic voice, a sympathetic figure. Her old nurse, Erikleia, will come in and express empathy with Penelope and her patience and her suffering.
1: This is a interesting story in that it is, in short, a revenge story, a story about long overdue justice, but it also turns, perhaps to a surprising extent, on the degree to which the various characters have compassion for one another. Mm. And there's a lot of language about who is hard-hearted and who is tender-hearted, both in the original Odyssey and in this version. Although exactly who is thought of as tender-hearted is somewhat different in this version as compared to the Odyssey.
0: Oh, interesting. Well, we'll keep track of that. Well, we're gonna switch gears a little bit with the next scene, still at the palace, however. And we're gonna see another one of the maids who attend Penelope, but a much younger maid, Melantho. And you will notice the very different feeling in her music and the companion who joins her, her lover Euremachus. They are going to also begin singing about the bitter torments that a lover suffers. But these two are lovers, so they're obviously together in the same place and same time. They're going to start talking about the bitter torments, but quickly move to the joys that come when those torments Are ended and love can be enjoyed.
2: Sarebbe perSiO il carret ha
0: Can you tell us about these characters we've just heard, Melantho and Eurymachus?
1: So, these two characters represent the greatest departure between this version of the story and the one found in the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, Eurymachus is one of the suitors, he is part of the band. Here, he is imagined more as a servant, uh, a lackey of the suitors, someone who's with them but not necessarily participating in the same sorts of trouble that they are causing. And he is faithfully in love with the servant Melantha. In the Odyssey, she only appears in a couple places and always to taunt Odysseus, always Mm. as this kind of cruel character who is romantically involved, or at least erotically involved with Eurymicus, even though he is still one of the suitors, even though he is still pursuing Penelope's hand and she is kind of a, a quizzling, a collaborator, someone who is helping the suitors and hmm. is not looked on positively and certainly isn't a model of true love. That's quite different and an interesting difference because it allows this opera to present an alternative. Penelope, who is alone, but who we know has a future with love. And this couple who is together, but are ultimately doomed.
0: Very interesting. And I also notice in the words that they use to express love, they use dangerous language. A flame, kindle, fire. Those words come up repeatedly in the language of their song.
1: And it echoes some of the language that Penelope is using to talk about the Trojan War, which she describes as a punishment for Helen's adultery, thinking of Odysseus as a punisher of that crime.
0: Fascinating.
1: Which is a bit of an interesting way to interpret that. And in fact, a more moralizing and one might say more Christian way of interpreting that story.
0: There you go. Dropping that word again that you dropped earlier. (laughs) Well, we'll discuss more of that later, but let's talk about this next scene. And this is a very short scene because a scene from this score seems to be missing. How can we have a scene missing from the score? Well, there's only one score from this entire opera, which was ever found. Remember, we talked about the fact that most of Monteverdi's operas don't even exist anymore, only three of them exist? Yes. Well, we only have this one because the score for this was found in Vienna in the 19th century, this mid-17th century opera. The score for it, we had librettos. We have, uh, I think, approximately nine librettos for this. But the score was found in vienna in the 19th century and it its authenticity was questioned until the 20th century when it was definitively authenticated so there are some discrepancies in that there are scenes that are plotted out in the librettos that don't appear in this particular score and whether that's a particular version of the opera or it was a choice that monteverdi had made as time went by it's unknown but there's a scene, a transitional scene, after the, the two lovers sing that has a sea with different sea creatures frolicking and enjoying themselves, and then there's a symphonia. A boat will come in, and this symphonia is meant to be quiet and soft so as not to to wake the sleeping passenger and that passenger of course is Odysseus and this is where the Phaeacians come in and they have this sleeping passenger and he is taken from the boat with some of his baggage and left off on the shore and they sail off and it's a very very short scene and then the next scene is amazing. In one of these venetian opera houses of the mid 17th century with all their stage machinery that they were willing to show off and then the god neptune appears out of the deep
1: is that a deus ex machina
0: (laughs) i think perhaps it is (laughs) i think perhaps it is well neptune is not in a good mood he is quite angry why
1: is he angry he's just kind of generally ornery he's often upset in these stories, which makes sense. He's the god of the sea, and the sea is very often not in a good mood with people. (laughs) Yes, rough seas. Yeah, and particularly with Odysseus. Odysseus famously blinded one of Neptune's demigod children, a cyclops, and there were mitigating circumstances (laughs) that (laughs) <laughs> the Cyclops was attempting to eat Odysseus and his crew. Right, that
0: that's from a part of the Odyssey, one of the books, from the earlier part that's not shown in this opera.
1: Yeah, but Neptune, uh, he, he doesn't think that uh, counts very much as a mitigating circumstance, and so he is very vengeful against Odysseus. And in keeping with his standard issue rivalry with Athena throughout much of myth, he is trying to stop Odysseus from returning home.
0: Right, because Athena, Minerva, her other name, is a protector of Odysseus, of Ulysses.
1: Yeah, so we find him in conversation with Jupiter, or Jove, or Zeus, or Zeus, or however you want to say it, (laughs) the king of the gods.
0: And they're brothers, aren't they?
1: Yes, yes, that whole earliest generation of gods, uh, the children of Cronus, and... The Neptune character here is not terribly different from the one in Greek myth. The Jupiter character is kind of fascinatingly different as this (laughs) arbiter who is surprisingly merciful. And again, we may read a, a kind of Christianizing gloss here. At the same time, one of the great themes of this opera is the extent to which human beings wage war on fate, on destiny. Right. And Neptune says that people have defied his decree by helping Odysseus to return home. These people being the Phaeacians who have dropped him off on his homeland of Ithaca. Yes. And so he convinces Jupiter to allow him to punish these people by turning them and their ship to stone.
0: And unceremoniously... Boom! It just happens. Mm-hmm. Interesting to me that his anger at Odysseus, Ulysses, is taken out on the Phaeacians, the ones who put the man that he's angry at in the boat, but not the man he's angry at. The boat and the people in it are turned to stone, but Odysseus is left unharmed with his treasure on shore.
1: And that's part of the story is that Neptune can't actually destroy. Odysseus. He can destroy everything he has, everything around him, his ship, his crew, and at the same time, Odysseus himself cannot be harmed, because that is not his fate. Mm. And ultimately, Jupiter sense because the humans have shown pride in defying the will of heaven. And we, in fact, get the chorus of the Phaeacians saying that human beings can do as much as they want and that heaven is indifferent immediately before they are, of course, turned to stone. (laughs) Yes,
0: not so indifferent, are they?
1: (laughs) No, sadly for the Phaeacians, no, they are not.
0: No, they aren't. Well, we're going to carry on with our opera and find... Ulysses, you you mentioned that in the Odyssey when we first encounter Ulysses himself he is alone on a rock and weeping and now when we first encounter Ulysses in this opera he is alone and bewildered
1: and feels that he has been betrayed because he does not know where he is he feels that he has been deserted and deceived and left out on some rocky island. He doesn't know that he has been brought to his homeland. He doesn't know that the gifts that the Ephesians have given him remain with him. And he doesn't know that his homecoming and final victory is close at hand.
0: Right. And the people who have brought him there and given him all these gifts have paid for it with their very lives. Yes. Well, let's meet Ulysses in this opera as he has been deposited on his homeland.
2: Sonno, immortal sonno, fratello della <laughs> morte, altri ti chiama. Sogno trasportato, deluso e conosco, ti conosco ben io eroi pur degli errori sono io la colpa che se l'ombra è del sonno sorella oppure compagna che si confida all'ombra perduto alla fine contro ragione si bagna. Oh, dei sempre stagnati, non mi hanno mai platati, contro l'isse che dorme anche severi. Vostri divini imperi, contro l'uman volessi infermi e forti, ma non tolga E feaci ingannatori, voi e voi, voi pur mi promettesse di ricondurmi salvo in vita con mia patria con le ricchezze mie con dei tesori, feaci mancatoni.
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and we have just met the title character, Ulysses, and he is alone. On the shores of Ithaca though he does not realize where he is and he's feeling a little sorry for himself but he's no longer alone another character has shown up it appears to be a shepherd boy grant tell us about this shepherd boy
1: well he seems very young and innocent and Ulysses says that no one has dishonesty in their heart who has no hair on their chin and I gotta say as someone <laughs> who has worked with children before um. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> and all women are honest, aren't they? <laughs> that seems to be the implication.
0: It, it does, doesn't it?
1: And, and yet it is no shepherd boy, nor someone young, nor even someone particularly honest. It is...
0: Mm-hmm. His protector.
1: Yes. Athena, Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, protector of cities and defender of civilization and the civilized order.
0: Well, how fortunate for him that she should show up at just this moment.
1: And she does not reveal herself immediately, nor does he reveal himself immediately. In fact, they both are in disguise trying to trick the other into Believing that they are someone different. But of course, Minerva She's
0: is- She's a goddess. She must know.
1: She is not deceived. She sees through <laughs> to his nature and calls him by name. That must rattle him. Shrewd indeed is Ulysses, but wiser is Minerva, she says.
0: Oh, so she calls him out just before revealing herself.
1: Indeed. And he is uh, astonished and very, very grateful.
0: Well, yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, what's the next step?
1: The next step is she predicts what's going to happen, that he is going to return home in disguise and encounter his faithful wife. And then she goes on this interesting digression, speaking about the city of Troy burning in vengeance. That is to say that Troy had done wrong and that it was just that it burned.
0: Mm, Interesting.
1: And now it is time for Ulysses to return to his home and restore the proper order.
0: Mm, I I imagine those comments about Troy were meant to put some ideas in his head.
1: Yes, and again, we hear this metaphor of burning. That is Mm -hmm. the burning of love and passion, particularly impure passion the kind that brought Helen to Troy. Mm. And burning as retribution, as vengeance, as what Troy earned in recompense for that burning passion.
0: And burning can also be a, a cleansing of evil, a getting rid of evil.
1: Yes. The Greek word catharsis having to do with this. And a core part of the story is the idea of the upset order of things being resolved. The world returning to its proper state, Mm. which is not of despotism and anarchy and the cruelty of the strong to the weak, but rather rule through wisdom and law and hospitality.
0: Right. And there's some practicalities to be seen too. She instructs him on his disguise, which he obeys and she instructs nymphs to hide at the treasure that was given to him. And they do.
1: And his disguise, fascinatingly, is as an old man. Yes, In the same way that Odysseus underestimated Minerva because of her apparent youth, mm. he expects to be underestimated because of his old age and frail appearance.
0: Well, I give you Minerva and Ulysses. Oh, <laughs> Opera for everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone.
1: We air Sundays from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming.
0: KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station.
1: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes.
0: I'm your host, Pat Wright.
1: And I'm Grant.
0: Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant. Welcome back, Grant.
1: It's wonderful to be here.
0: Grant, I can't thank you enough for joining us on this opera about Homer's Odyssey. I don't think we could do this without you.
1: It's one of my favorite places to be.
0: (laughs) I'm so grateful. Before we continue with our story, however, I would like to take a moment to thank all of the people involved in the production of this wonderful CD that we've been listening to. This CD was recorded in 2014, and it's a production of Boston Baroque, under musical director Martin Perlman. The role of Ulysses was sung by Fernando Guimaraes. Penelope, his wife, was sung by Jennifer Rivera, Telemachus, who we will hear from soon, sung by Aaron Sheehan, Minerva, sung by Leah Wool, the god Neptune, Joel Fernandez, the god Jupiter, Owen Mackintosh. And with so many other named characters as well as the chorus, I'd like to also recognize the singers Daniel Auchenschloss, Sarah Heaton, Christopher Lowry, Mark Molomot, Abigail Nimes, Krista River, Daniel Shirley, Sonia Dutroit-Tengblad, and Ulysses Thomas. Apologies for any mispronunciations with those names, but thank you, one and all, for the wonderful music that we've been listening to. Well, Grant, you know what that brings us to now. The Opera Helmet Quiz, and I have just one simple question. Can you recap for us our story thus far?
1: I'll do my level best. Good. Because, you know, human frailty and all that. So we start with a prologue where we meet human frailty. Human frailty is besieged by time, fortune, and love before whom it is powerless. Fast forward to Penelope, wife of Odysseus in the island of Ithaca at the palace. She is besieged in her own way, in her case by, well, notionally they're suitors, but in practice they seem to just be house guests who refuse to leave. Leeches. <laughs> yes. And things are pretty tough there. Of course, there is one couple that's doing very well, Penelope's servant and one of the <laughs> servants of the suitors. Alanto and Euromachus, respectively. They are deeply in love. And
0: sing joyfully.
1: Yes. (laughs) Meanwhile, our eponymous hero, Ulysses, Mm. arrives on the shore, brought by the Phaeacians, who are defying the will of the gods by bringing him there. Always dangerous. And as a result, they and their ship are turned to stone. Next thing we know, Ulysses is confronted by, well, someone he thinks is a shepherd, but who turns out to be Minerva, the goddess of wisdom and his patron. And she sets him forth on a plan to reclaim his homeland.
0: Yes, it's interesting. At this point in the show, as an audience, we have seen three different deities. We've seen in their own realm, Neptune, Poseidon, and Zeus, Jupiter. But interacting with the human world, we've seen Minerva here in what you just described.
1: Yeah, Minerva, at least in the Greek myths that we have surviving, often comes across a lot better than some of the other gods. Not in, not in every myth, but in many, the goddess of wisdom is a friend to humankind in a way that other gods are not which on some level intuitively makes sense. Wisdom is a greater friend to humanity than say, lightning bolts as represented by Zeus or (laughs) storms and earthquakes and the choppy seas that are represented by Neptune.
0: Mm. Well, as we continue on with our story, Minerva's gonna have just a little bit more information for Ulysses before she departs.
1: Minerva knows that Ulysses is going to need allies. And so she sets him off to find the shepherd Eumaeus, one of his old servants who remembers him from before the Trojan War, more than 20 years ago when Ulysses first left for that.
0: Yeah, he's been gone for 20 years. Just, wow, that's a long time.
1: I know, talk about a long-distance relationship there. And they didn't even have Snapchat.
0: (laughs) They didn't have, or even... Yeah, reliable mail service. (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, everyone thinks that he's dead. And Mm. meanwhile, Penelope is, for some reason, some reason that is hard to even exactly fathom, quite convinced that he is still alive out there somewhere 10 years after all of the other warriors from the Trojan War have returned home.
0: Yeah, faithful Penelope. Well, once Minerva gives this advice to Ulysses, Ulysses is left alone, and he sings a song of joy about how fortunate he is. In the back of the head of the audience members, people who would know, classically trained people who would know the story of the Odyssey, they would know how much Ulysses has been through, and yet he sings a song about how fortunate he is, no more Shall mortals despair on earth, he sings. I am fortunate, fortunate Ulysses.
1: All's well that ends well.
0: (laughs) Well, it's not over yet. (laughs) Our next scene is in the palace, and we see Penelope, who knows nothing of all of this, with the young servant, the one that you mentioned earlier, being in love with the young man. And she has some advice for her queen.
1: Yeah, she basically says, uh, hey, it turns out being in love is great. And this whole thing where you're in love with someone who's dead, uh, that's probably not going to do you any good. You should just, like, go find the cutest suitor and (laughs) ask him out on a date.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this does not land real well with Penelope. (laughs) She's not taking advice from this young woman who seems flighty and not like she's giving very good advice. The the two women don't see eye to eye on much of anything, it would seem.
1: Yeah, Penelope says that love is a vain idol, a vagabond god. And we, who have seen the prologue recently, may be inclined to agree with her. Love has not necessarily come across as a particularly good friend of humankind thus far. That's true. And she specifically invokes the stories of Theseus and Jason. Stories that would have been known to the classically trained audience as stories in which men betray women for their own gain. Theseus who leaves Ariadne behind, Jason who leaves Medea behind. There is something here about the gender politics, Mm. the danger of surrendering oneself to a man who cannot be trusted.
0: Interesting for Penelope, who appears to have been left by her seafaring husband to reference these two men.
1: Quite intriguingly so. Yes, both of them sailed away and abandoned the women who loved them.
0: Yeah, yeah. After she has sung this song, we have another change of scene. And we're in a wooded grove with the old servant, the old shepherd, Eumaeus, the one that Minerva told Ulysses to go find. And he has his own introductory song. Eumaeus is essentially saying that he likes his life out in the woods, he doesn't have the worries that come with being wealthy and have all of the responsibilities of kingship. It's an interesting commentary on the contrast between himself, who's, and he's certainly seen it up close, being a servant of this royal household. It's a contrast between himself and what he sees going on at the palace with all of the
1: suitors. Yeah, and he gets in this kind of argument with Eris, one of the hangers-on of the suitors, who mocks him for this, and says, I live among kings, you here among cattle. And of course, the thing that he doesn't seem to understand is that Iris is irrelevant and pointless among these men who call themselves kings, whereas Eumaeus is the king of his own little world.
0: Right. And Iris, we're going to see him a little bit later as well, poignantly. He's an interesting character in this very early opera, in the history of operas, and often pointed to as one of the precursors of these characters who become these these buffo characters, these big, like physically big comic characters, especially in Italian opera, buffo characters. Not a comic opera, but he's a comic character.
1: Yeah, he's definitely got some Falstaff, Malvolio (laughs) energy going.
0: Well, he's a a glutton, as he essentially readily admits himself, and Eumaeus calls him right here.
1: Which really brings us to one of the key themes here, is about restraint. One of the things that Mm. can protect human beings against these powers that threaten to destroy them is restraint. And the heroes of the opera are people who are restrained. And those who are unrestrained are not really the villains, but sort of the objects of tragedy. Mm. Eumaeus says to Iris that he is going to go eat and die. And he's not wrong in a very literal sense, but also what he means is that this person whose entire life is about food and prestige, that is nothing much worth living for, really.
0: No honor in that. Yeah. And that was an immediate contrast, for example, to the restraint that we just saw from Penelope.
1: And the total lack of it from her servant.
0: Exactly well eros leaves the scene umeus is left alone and he's reflecting on his missing master ulysses and he's recalling what a good and kind and generous master he was generous ulysses,
2: ulysses, ulysses generoso, fu L'OS topola in Cener vircità di Ma, Ma forsi il Cel, il il Ciel, il rato Nell'Accaduto de Troiano Regno. Volle, volle la vita tua perfitti, ma il suo sdegno.
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Monteverdi's. I ritorno d'Ulysses in patria, the return of Ulysses to his homeland. And that was a welcome homecoming of Eumaeus, the faithful shepherd, when he sees Ulysses himself.
1: But he doesn't recognize him right away.
0: No, he doesn't. Because, of course, Minerva, Athena, has disguised him as an old man. In that disguise, Eumaeus being the true and kind man that he is, has offered him food and lodging and comfort, explaining that beggars are the favorites of heaven, friends of Jupiter.
1: Which is very clearly a Christian interpolation. No ancient Greek person would have thought of (laughs) beggars as being the favorites of Jupiter. That's uh, simply not how Greco-Roman religion worked.
0: No, but, but in the Odyssey, the kindness of Eumaeus is appreciated by Ulysses, as I recall.
1: Yes, the distinction is not really about the kindness being valued. It's very clear in the Odyssey that kindness is a good thing and cruelty is a bad thing. Although Odysseus can be pretty ruthless when he needs to be. Yes. At the same time, rendering Zeus as a god interested in the weak and the poor (laughs) is not terribly uh, (laughs) true to the spirit of the original religion. There is a human element and a human decency that is really quite apart from the gods. The gods are not necessarily moral. Zeus is the god of justice, but it is very much a political justice, the justice that upholds the political order, rather than the kind of justice that sees beggars treated fairly.
0: Mm. Well, towards the end, when you hear that triumphant sound and you hear ulysses voice at the end that that second voice that's ulysses who he appears not to be and he triumphantly tells eumaeus that ulysses is alive his fatherland will see him penelope will embrace him fate has saved him and the shepherd must believe and eumaeus is joyful and they celebrate <laughs>
2: Cortese albergo avrai Solo i mendici favoriti del ciel Di giovi amici Ulisse, ulisse, vive vivo La patria lo vedrà Venelo bella avrà E il fatto non fu mai father, privo, ma my father, I left my father, dimore
0: and that sense of celebration that's what ended act one and now we move into act two grant where do we find ourselves in the beginning of act two
1: act two opens with uh what we might call a deus ex machina (laughs) indeed minerva is in her chariot and bringing telemachus to the place of confrontation.
0: We finally meet Telemachus.
1: Telemachus in the Odyssey has, up until this point, been on an excursion to try and find out what has happened to his father. He goes and meets some of the heroes of the Trojan War and makes inquiries about them and is, in fact, ultimately helped by Minerva and given guidance by her.
0: And just as she told ulysses to go to the grove to meet eumaeus she's gone to collect telemachus and bring him to that same grove so that he can be reunited with his father and eumaeus and the three men can work together to plan how to recapture the palace so that ulysses can have his palace back and be reunited with his wife yes and in the meantime while they're in the chariot i must say grant this is one of my favorites from this opera when we have Minerva and Telemachus singing together. Hmm. So first a little bit of Telemachus and then the voices together of the goddess with the son of Ulysses, simply saying, the mighty gods sail on the breezes and plow the winds.
2: The car, the car, the car, the car,
0: was beautiful up in the skies but now we're back in our wooded grove and Eumaeus greets Telemachus and he greets him very warmly almost like a a son or a grandson and there's a moment where Eumaeus introduces Telemachus to his guest this elderly man that he's invited in to share his hospitality And as part of this greeting, the two of them sing a little song, Eumaeus and the disguised Ulysses, and it's quite charming.
1: They're very happy about this situation.
0: (laughs) It's very sweet. (laughs) Telemachus, however, is not happy. Telemachus is grateful to Eumaeus for his friendliness and kindness, but he, like Penelope, ever aches for the return of Ulysses. But... Eumaeus says, oh, no, no, this man has good news about your father. He has assured me that Ulysses will return. This will happen. And once again, Eumaeus and Ulysses sing together in beautiful harmony about the happiness they feel together. And at this point, Telemachus warms and he begins to feel happy also. He says, "Okay, Eumaeus, I buy it you go and tell my mother that I'm coming to see her soon. Tell her that my arrival is imminent.
1: Then the very moment that Eumaeus has stepped off the stage, a bolt of lightning comes from the sky. Hmm. The earth opens up and Ulysses is revealed to his son.
0: In his true form, not the old man any longer. It's like a miracle.
1: Yes, it's everything changing in one little lightning flash. Yes.
0: And needless to say, there is a beautiful, tender song between the reunited father and son, and it's hugely important. This is a son who last saw his father when he was a baby.
1: Yes, Ulysses tried to trick his way out of going on the Trojan War by pretending to have lost his mind, ranting and raving and pushing his plow around, but when the soldiers who had come to bring him to war, put his infant son in front of the plow, Ulysses swerved, revealing himself to be a man still possessed of his senses. And that was just about the last interaction these two have had.
0: Oh, I just got chills all up and down my body. I'd forgotten that part of the story. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I guess he'd been told that story a few times and, and knew it well. Well, and he's been off searching for his father all this time. I, I can only imagine the feeling of relief and joy and expectation now that the great Ulysses, his father, has returned.
2: Yes. Oh. Ani glorioso, in He'll be to Mortal, mortal, Tutto confie, tutto, tutto spera, Che quando c'è il protege, è natura. Mortal, tutto, tutto spera, Che quando c'è il protege, natura. Mortal, protegge, che quando protegge, che quando protegge L'impossibile
0: You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and that was Telemachus singing with his long lost father in Monteverdi's opera about Ulysses returning to his homeland. Grant, you know what I love about that piece of music? I love how it starts out with the two of them coming together by alternating when they sing, and then they overlap when they sing. And then at the end of the piece, they're singing together in harmony. And what they're singing about there is about themselves as mortals.
1: Immortal mortal trusts all and hopes all, for when heaven protects, nature has no jurisdiction, and the impossible can still often come true. Which I think is uh, what they say in Cinderella.
0: <laughs> is it now? I'm a little rusty on my Cinderella. <laughs>
1: yeah, impossible things are happening every day.
0: Oh, they do say that. Well, it's a strong finish for the two of them, and... Actually, that piece ends with Ulysses sending Telemachus off to go find his mother. And he says, I must turn myself back in to that old man I was when you first met me. And our next scene finds us back at the palace.
1: Our lovers, Melantho and Eurymachus, are... Well, they're conspiring is what they're doing. (laughs) They're trying to figure out how they can talk Penelope into giving up on her dead husband and choosing one of the suitors and enjoying the fruits of love.
0: Mm. It's interesting, these two, because they're almost like a watered-down version of these characters from the original
1: Odyssey. Yeah, I think that's a generous way to put it. They're, in fact, extremely different, at least in (laughs) terms of how they're morally charged. In the Odyssey, both of these characters are, in their own way, villains Mm. Melantho is the one who reveals the trick that penelope is playing on the suitors penelope as a stalling tactic with the suitors in the odyssey decides that she needs to weave a funeral veil for her father Mm. and she says i will choose one of you when i finish and they wait patiently as she works on it and She seems to make... She never finishes. Very slow progress, yeah. (laughs) And it turns out that she is weaving every day and unweaving every night.
0: Mm. But there's no weaving in this opera.
1: Exactly. The entire plot line is kind of skipped over because these two are serving a different function in this version Mm. of the story. They're serving a function of an opposing vision of love to the one that we see with Odysseus and Penelope.
0: And even the name Eurymachus—that he's a different role. He's one of the suitors, as opposed to one of the suitors' servants,
1: which he is in this opera. Yes, he's one of the chief suitors in the original Odyssey. It's interesting the way that these two characters have been made. More sympathetic, but also still serving as dramatic foils for our protagonists.
0: And speaking of the suitors, we are soon to meet them. They are going to come on stage and continue... To try to woo, berate, besiege, cajole, plead, try to charm the steadfast, chaste, long-suffering Penelope. She really doesn't like these guys.
1: No, but she plays the game. She yeah. does, in her own way, flirt with them. And that's true to the source material as well, is that she is quite crafty. In fact, a match for the famously crafty Odysseus.
0: <laughs>
1: and she. That's good. Yeah. She flirts with them. She plays them off of one another. That's very much what this scene is about.
0: Yes. And in this opera, there are just three men who stand in for all of the suitors that are described in the source material in the Odyssey of Homer. And these three are very interesting. I think their names are Tom, Dick, and Harry. (laughs) Antinous, Pisander, and Amphinous? Sure. Sure, that's how I'm reading it, anyway, in the anglicized version. And they sing in a madrigal-like way, which makes perfect sense for Monteverdi and his compositional history. It's beautiful. We have a bass, we have a tenor, and we have a countertenor. And the countertenor is sometimes sung by a mezzo. It's, It's lovely to hear them sing. Sometimes they sing individually, of course, but oftentimes it's all three voices together. And something you've probably noticed already as we listen to all these pieces, typically it, it's very crisp diction. It's very clear what all of the words are. Unlike a lot of other operas that we're used to experiencing where if you speak the language that is the presentation of the opera, you may or may not understand it anyway. I almost feel like I don't speak Italian, but I almost feel like I understand what they're saying, you know? It's it's so clear. Yeah. When they are singing these words. That is typical of this sort of opera. Hmm. I don't like these guys, but I love it when they sing.
1: <laughs> Let's have a listen. <laughs>
2: Father, who died? 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 Who Okay, I'll Loro, sol, loro, sol, loro, sia loro, magia. Ogni cor, Ogni cor, ogni cor, è fer-
0: Like I said, they're not nice men, those suitors, but um, they do sing nicely. Yeah. Well, things are not going according to plan as far as the suitors are concerned. Eumaeus has shown up and he has some news.
1: Telemachus is returning home and Ulysses is soon to follow. Oh no, that's not good news for the suitors. And kind of confusing news for Penelope. She's not sure what to make of this.
0: Well, yeah, and she says it's uncertain and it will either make my grief stronger or change the course of my stars.
1: But the suitors are just, there's no ambiguity there. They're just unhappy about this and they're like, uh, what could we possibly do? Uh, we need
0: a plan.
1: <laughs> and they, they, they talk about it for a bit. They decide to uh, take the clever and subtle route of, you know, killing telemachus
0: that's not really gonna win penelope's heart i wouldn't think
1: well they're gonna give her gifts afterwards and that'll make it all better they don't really understand love these suitors
0: (laughs) no and if ulysses shows up that's not gonna help things much either if they kill telemachus no no and in the meanwhile after they've hatched this plan an eagle flies overhead and everybody looks up and notices it
1: the eagle is the bird of jupiter or Zeus, and they read it as an omen, an omen that the god of justice is watching, that ruin is predicted, punishment is predicted, if they continue along this course.
0: Yes, and they know that justice is not a thing that would be good for them.
1: No, especially if they're going to murder Telemachus.
0: Right, well enough of the suitors. Meanwhile, back in our woody grove, we have a little scene between Ulysses and Minerva, and it's once more almost a pep talk that Ulysses gives himself, supported by Minerva, his number one cheerleader and support.
1: Yes, and it's one of these things where we get this interesting intersection of the Greco-Roman mythology and the Christian overlayer ethics. Yeah, Ulysses says, he commits a great sin who, when defended by heaven, fears the world. And this is this Hmm. idea of faith. And there are analogs to faith, certainly, that exist in Greco-Roman religion. But this idea of faith itself being a a virtue is very much a, a monotheistic import. And I should say, whenever I'm observing the differences between... Greco-Roman, and Christian values, ethics, ideas. I'm not saying that this story has gone wrong. I think that what they're doing here is something very interesting, where they are fusing Mm -hmm. their own beliefs and ideas to this ancient story and trying to understand and interpret it. Mm -hmm. It's not inaccurate, it's creative.
0: Well, that makes perfect sense for an opera, doesn't it? That you're creating this wonderful story out of great source material and doing it in your time period and making sense for your own audience.
1: We're all about the mashup.
0: (laughs) Well, it's just as all the directors who put it on now have to make it make sense for the audience they're presenting it to. Yes. So not long after this encounter between Ulysses and Minerva, we have a moment where we see Telemachus with his mother, and Telemachus is giving a report to his mother about his travels, searching for his father. And he spends quite a bit of time telling her about his encounter with the famously beautiful and beguiling Helen.
1: In fact, he spends a suspiciously large portion of his time talking about Helen.
0: Well, I said she was beguiling and beautiful.
1: It's honestly just beautiful poetry here. Mm. Even in
0: translation.
1: Even in translation. Telemachus is uh, smitten, but smitten in a very philosophical sort of way. Mm. When he saw Helen, he was immersed in her eyes and wondering that the whole universe was not full of Parises. One Paris alone is but little prey for the daughter of Leta, the daughter of Leta being Helen and Paris being the man with whom she ran off, or depending on the version perhaps was kidnapped by, to Troy, therefore setting off the Trojan War as her husband and his many military allies set out to bring her back.
0: And in his description we get more of these references to flames and sparks and fire and burning.
1: Poor was the havoc, mild was the burning with so much fire. Unless the whole world burns for her, the rest is too little. I saw in those beautiful eyes the nascent sparks of burning Troy, the kindling flames, and long ago an astrologer, enamored of those orbs of fire, prophesied flames and foresaw heat that would burn cities as well as hearts. Paris died, it is true, yet Paris knew joy. This boy is carried away. (laughs) And carried away by one of our dominant themes, the way that human frailty interacts with the fires of love. Mm. And he is, to some extent, being chided by his mother for not showing the restraint that is prized as the preeminent virtue here in this opera.
0: And his mother takes him to task just a tiny bit and says, no, no. You've been ensnared among the coils of a serpent. Don't let that take hold of you too strongly, my son. After all, he's back with her, so she can she can give him this wisdom. And he says, oh, well, it's okay, Mom. She had the gift of prophecy, and there's a prophecy I want to share with you.
1: And it turns out Odysseus is coming back.
0: And not only that.
1: Well, the suitors are going to get what's coming to them.
0: Yes, and he's specific, he says, and what's coming to them is death. Odysseus will bring them death, just what they deserve. And Odysseus will get the restoration of his kingdom.
1: And we see a parallel here. The actual reason in the logic of the theme for him mentioning Helen is that it parallels here. He points out that Troy was justly punished for their iniquity, but also that it's sort of defensible, that before Helen's beauty, you can understand it. Human frailty bows to that. Mm. And in the same way, the suitors are going to be punished. They're going to be destroyed, killed, in fact. Yeah. And yet, knowing what we know of Penelope, one can understand it.
0: Are you equating Penelope's beauty and charms to those of Helen?
1: I mean, just for my own money, I'd rather date Penelope than Helen.
0: (laughs) Does she seem like less trouble to you?
1: (laughs) Or maybe the good kind of trouble, yeah. Uh,
0: Hmm, okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, in the next scene, we're back with the suitors, <laughs> and they're uh, they're hanging around the uh, the palace there. And Eumaeus comes in with a companion, an elderly-looking companion, his guest, in fact. Hmm. And the suitors are not happy with this ill-dressed elderly companion, and they begin to insult this
1: old man. And in the Greco-Roman world, in fact, in Almost the entire ancient world, one of the key precepts is that of hospitality. Yes. There is a whole code of ethics, xenia, in ancient Greek ethics, which is the code of conduct. And we have already mm-hmm. seen that the suitors are violating the guest side of this code. Right. They have been staying for far longer than they are desired, they have been eating out the house and home, impoverishing the family and have broken the sacred bonds of guest relationship with host. And then someone who is new comes in, a guest in this place that they have to some extent made themselves at home, Mm -hmm. and they are ungracious to him. And we see that they are violating the code of guest host relationships, the hospitality Mm. on both ends.
0: And Eumaeus is offended at this. After all, we saw Eumaeus being most gracious in his hospitality when this man first showed up looking ragged and in need. And he says, nobility, which is civilized, is not cruel and you cannot scorn compassion.
1: And Antinous just dismisses Eumaeus as a peasant. Yes. That he is a low-class person, a shepherd, and what business does a shepherd have lecturing a prince on nobility? Right.
0: Right. And at this point, that hanger-on, Eros, who attaches himself to the suitors and who's living large because of the suitors, decides to join in and figures he can go ahead and pick on the old man. And once he directly picks on Ulysses, disguised as the old man, that's when Ulysses actually responds to the person who is not a prince. And the two of them basically smack talk each other to the point where they decide they're going to have a fight with each other and fight they do
1: and it does not work out well in this story or really any of the others for anyone to challenge Odysseus to a fight
0: it really doesn't it doesn't matter what he's dressed up like or disguised like Odysseus Ulysses he's gonna win
1: yeah he gets his reputation as the trickster hero but he can throw down with the best of them
0: yes it doesn't take long And Irus says, I am beaten. And Penelope praises the mendicant. Brave mendicant, please stay. You are honored. You are safe here. You've shown your honor and your bravery.
1: And that word mendicant, we don't use that word every day, most of us. No. I noticed that my translation actually says brave beggar. Oh, interesting. But the Italian says mendicant, which is a word most familiar to us English speakers as referring to those monastic orders that take vows of poverty and wander, depending on the kindness of strangers.
0: Mm, It's true. Well then, Penelope returns to her role of bringing peace, calming things down, trying to keep the suitors calm so that this little
1: fight doesn't break out into a giant fight. And she has played this game well for a long time. She has these men, many in number, noblemen with servants and swords and spears and shields, horses. And if ever they gave up on her choosing one of them, they naturally would simply take the kingdom by force. She can't have that. And instead, she continues to dangle the promise of her choosing one of them and they compete with each other. Mm -hmm. It's really very brilliant how she is able to maintain the sovereignty of the kingdom, such that Ulysses has a homeland to return to at all.
0: Well, you said it before, she's a clever woman and a, a good match for clever Odysseus. She does maintain this property while Odysseus is away. She wants to maintain an inheritance for her son. She wants to believe against belief that her husband will return. And it is really a hope against hope, given that all the other men have returned from the war, those who have survived anyway. Well, at this point, almost without realizing what she says, she tells Melantho, bring me Ulysses' bow, the mighty bow of the great Ulysses, which is a surprise. It's been in in storage for a long, long time. And she explains, this is the bow and the quiver of the mighty Ulysses, whoever of you can most proudly shoot an arrow with this powerful bow, you will win Ulysses' wife and his kingdom." Well now, this is what the suitors have been waiting for.
1: And almost as soon as she says it, she wishes she could take it back. Right. Why does the mouth lightly promise that which, alas, is so at odds with the heart? But she has said it, and the challenge has been issued.
0: And after all, previously Minerva says, I'm gonna put these words in Penelope's mouth. And so she did. And the suitors, they are beyond thrilled. They're gonna sing a happy song. Our patience is going to be rewarded. One of us is finally going to be lord of this palace and lord over Penelope.
2: (laughs) So don't
0: Ritorno d'Ulis in Patria. And these are the suitors we've just heard. Very excited about the opportunity to finally win the hand of Penelope and all of these wonderful lands of Ulysses by shooting Ulysses' bow.
1: And Penelope says this interesting thing. She says, this is Ulysses' bow, or rather, the bow of Cupid, of love that must pierce my heart. And it's this image we're all familiar with of Cupid as the archer who sets people's hearts on fire by shooting them in the heart with these love arrows. Mm. It's intriguing because she is issuing this as a challenge, and also at the same time, it's with this bow that Ulysses is going to win her heart by killing all the people who have been annoying her for years.
0: (laughs) Annoying. That's putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, one by one, the suitors just try to ready the bow, and bend it so that they can make it work, but
1: they can't do it. And they, each of them invokes a patron god of some kind. Pisander invokes Cupid, invokes love to give strength to his arm, and that fails him. Amphinimus invokes Mars, the god of war, and he can't do it either. And Antinous, The greatest of the suitors invokes Penelope herself as his patron.
0: He has previously referred to her
1: as a goddess. And it doesn't work for any of them.
0: No, and she almost rubs salt in the wound there. Vain and empty are the titles of kings without valor. Lineage and trappings of royalty are of no avail in supporting illustrious scepters. He who does not possess virtues like Ulysses is an unworthy heir to Ulysses' treasures. So she's disdainful and dismissive. Game over.
1: Except, or is it? Not yeah, not quite. Ulysses says, "Hey, I, I know I'm just an old beggar, but I want to give it a try. I, I won't ask for your hand. I renounce the prize, <laughs> but you know, I want to do it for the sport of it.
0: Humor an old man.
1: <laughs> it's gonna
0: get interesting, huh?
1: <laughs> and she allows him, perhaps at Minerva's secret suggestion.
0: Hmm. Well, again, fire is invoked. She says a glorious contest of an aged frame against virile hearts could turn the fire of love into blushes of shame.
1: And Ulysses says his own little prayer. His prayer is to heaven. And heaven, throughout this play, has been used to refer to divine justice. Mm -hmm. Retribution upon those who are wicked (laughs) and protection of those who are righteous.
0: Vendetta, vendetta as it will say in the song coming
1: up. (laughs) (laughs) And he bends the bow and shoots miraculously and then declares that Jupiter in his thunder cries for vengeance. This is how the bow shoots to death, to havoc, to ruin.
0: And that will end act two. And we're going to listen to that exciting end When you will start, we will start with Penelope saying, yes, you may try it, old man. Ulysses' prayer, the three suitors, wonder, astonishment, miraculous in the extreme. That's them responding to him being able to bend the bow back. And then he invokes Jupiter, and you'll hear him say, vendetta, vendetta, vendetta.
1: Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance.
0: And he will shoot as you hear those last words being sung in what sounds like a pretty cheerful manner, that is when he is shooting all of the suitors and ridding his home of their pestilence.
2: (laughs) Domine. Sarma, sarva sarma sarma tuo conto cielo, le vittoria prestato so midai so voi son cari i sacrifici Grina, vendetta, 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 così largo, saetta, così largo, saietta. Alle morti, alle stracce, alle morti, alle stracce, Alle la muerte, a la estrada,
0: of Ulysses returning to his homeland in Monteverdi's opera. Interestingly, we open on a single character. This is Eros, that hanger-on of the suitors. He's all that's left of the suitors. He's the man who was beaten by Ulysses in that fight, but he doesn't have anyone to hang on to anymore. And he starts, oh grief, oh torment. Grant,
1: this almost buffa character, what's happened to him? He's received his comeuppance. And this is not terribly unsurprising. The gluttonous fool character often does end up with some kind of moment of pity towards the end of the story. And uh, this is his moment of pity. That he has built his life around the largesse of the suitors. Without them, he knows that he has no more protection. He knows that he has no more meal ticket. And he knows that the vengeance of Ulysses and indeed of heaven may soon come for him as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty dark at the end, he says, and before my body succumbs to hunger, may it be swallowed by the tomb. It's dark. Yes. And interestingly, the comment in all the librettos that you will find of this will note that the libretto copies that exist of this. As opposed to the single score that we have refer to a scene which was not found in the score likely because it's kind of depressing there was a scene in the libretto which was mercury telling the ghosts of all the suitors that they deserved their fate and that they were going down to Hades meanwhile back to the opera we do have
1: there's a bit of back and forth and it Resolves with Eumaeus telling the queen that the beggar is indeed Ulysses. Is she overjoyed? Uh no, she doesn't really believe it. She thinks that the shepherd is easily taken in.
0: Yes, she's not dismissed, she's not rude the way that the suitors were when they said oh you're just a she says oh mm, you've just been fooled because she's had to be so strong yes and so guarded for so long yes that's not going to fall away in an instant
1: no and instead she must be convinced Which makes sense. It's a story about the virtue of restraint, and here she is being quite unbelievably restrained.
0: Well, there's someone else who comes in. Surely her son can convince her. He says, oh no, Eumaeus is so wise. That man in disguise, that was my father. That was Ulysses.
1: And he reveals Minerva, Athena's role in protecting and guiding Ulysses and bringing him to this place.
0: What good fortune.
1: And yet, Penelope's not there when we leave this scene.
0: No, because she thinks, oh dear son, sweet, innocent son, you may see it as the gods helping your father, but we mortals, we're just playthings for the gods. You've been a plaything for the gods, they've deceived you too. She's kind to him, but she says you've been
1: deceived by the gods. Meanwhile amongst the gods. (laughs) If you were wondering what was actually going on with the gods, we get to see it in this very next scene.
0: Yes, in the sea we get to see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You set me
0: up. I couldn't help. Of course, of course. (laughs) Well, first, it's actually, it's Minerva and Juno in conversation.
1: Juno being the god otherwise known as Hera, the wife of Zeus slash Jupiter.
0: Okay, so Minerva says... Oh, we've got more of this fire imagery coming up, Grant. It goes throughout this whole thing. In fact, the first thing she says is, The flame is anger, great goddess. Fire is scorn. We scornful and angry ones have burned down the kingdom of Troy, offended a Trojan but avenged. The mightiest of the Greeks still struggles with destiny, with fate. The grief-stricken Ulysses. After all, that's her, her project right now.
1: And Juno just takes the moment to revel in the destruction of Troy. The original reason why Paris was matched up with Helen is because of a contest that was held between Aphrodite, also known as Venus, Mm. and Minerva and Juno, where Aphrodite had promised Paris love if he chose her as the most beautiful. Minerva promised Paris wisdom, And Juno promised him political power, and he chose love. This is the infamous judgment of Paris. Yes.
0: Not the wine-tasting one. The other one. The original one.
1: (laughs) Yes. And Paris is given love, but denied both wisdom and ultimately political power.
0: Oh, problems. Yes. All right. So she gets to revel in that, but does she do... What Minerva asks her
1: to do. Indeed. She goes and beseeches Jupiter, her husband. And in all of the myths, she's one of the very few people who's able to get him to do much of anything. He still goes against her pretty frequently. But when someone needs to (laughs) convince Jupiter, Zeus of something, his Mm -hmm. wife is generally the person to go to.
2: Yeah.
0: And it's interesting because... She goes to Jupiter and says, hear
1: my prayers. And she says that Ulysses has suffered enough. There must be mercy to go along with his vengeance. And Jupiter says, sure. But we got to do something about the fact that Neptune's pretty upset.
3: Yeah, (laughs)
0: because... That was the problem when we last saw Jupiter and Neptune, wasn't
1: it? And at least in this version, Neptune is surprisingly easily placated. Yes. Jupiter kind of just says, hey, are you up for this? And he's like, yeah, sure. Uh, I turned the Phaeacians to stone and thats I kind of got it out. That was that was the anger that I had to deal with. Yeah. In the original version, the final way that Odysseus has to placate Neptune is to expand the god of the sea's domain. So he takes an oar. And he travels inland. And he's supposed to travel inland until he finds a land where people don't say, Why are you carrying an ore?" But instead say, What is that you are carrying? Oh. And there to plant it in the ground. And thereby show honor to Neptune beyond the place where Neptune is known.
0: Fabulous.
1: But there's none of that in this. We just, we just, yeah, we're good. We're, we're all fine.
0: And speaking of differences between the source material and this opera... Can we just back up up a little bit about the demise of the suitors? I have this very strong image, uh, mental image of having read the Odyssey where he and Telemachus and the shepherd and maybe a few other faithful others bolt all the doors so that they can slaughter all of the suitors inside. After that contest, with the bow.
1: Yeah, in the actual Odyssey, there's a pretty extensive battle that takes place, partly because there are just so many of the suitors. Right. They do bolt the doors. The suitors eventually get them unlocked. They don't have their weapons originally. They end up getting their weapons and forming a shield wall. There's a whole bunch of back and forth before the battle is over. But ultimately, Odysseus and his faithful servants triumph.
0: Right. And I think in the process of all of that, there's also a sorting that goes on between who in the household was faithful to Penelope and the household and who was on the side of the suitors and not faithful. And in that sorting, it really is a question of life or death among the maids as well.
1: Yes. Those who allied themselves with the suitors and particularly those who took lovers among the suitors are, uh, well, they're killed. Yeah. It's a It's a a gruesome scene, and of course, there are reasons for omitting it in this version of the story, which seeks to tell a somewhat different moral than the original Odyssey.
0: Yeah, there are a number of reasons, Not, not to mention staging, but that's probably not the main reason. Yeah. Back to our gods. So Neptune is placated, and once Neptune gives his blessing to allow Ulysses to live in safety... The choir of heaven will sing. The choir of the sea will sing. The two choirs will sing together.
1: And then Jupiter gives Minerva a task to ensure that war does not break out. It turns out when you kill a whole bunch of princes all in one fell swoop, there are some people, and some very powerful people, in fact, who are very upset with you. And Minerva is given the task of preventing war, and she accepts this mission saying, I shall calm these spirits, I shall smother these flames, I shall command peace, Jupiter as it pleases you. Right. Again, we've got this fire imagery, fire as the destructive unrestrained force, and she is going to restrain it. And in the Odyssey, there's actually the beginnings of a battle that she has to stop. Mm. In this version, it's truncated, I think, largely for time, but also they do include the reference to the uprising of Achaeans, which they did not have to, so that they can again tie in this idea of chaos versus control.
0: Yes, it's interesting. We do keep pointing out a lot of the differences between this and the Odyssey, but just as you referenced before, it not being a criticism, our pointing out the differences is not really to say, oh, this is wildly different. These are little things, so much of the spirit and the truth of the Odyssey shines through in this presentation, I think.
1: Yes, it's, it speaks to the timeless nature of the Odyssey, that they're able to explore these ideas, some of which would have been familiar to the ancient Greek audience and some of which would have been quite different, while relying on the same story, themes, and to some extent even motifs.
0: Yes. All right, let's hear a little from our heavenly singers.
2: Contro i feaci arditi e temerari Mio sdegno si sfoga. Pago il delitto pessimo La nave che restò
0: in the palace of Ulysses and Penelope, we are alone with Eruclea, Penelope's faithful old servant, and she's, she's troubled. She's deeply concerned. She has a moral quandary.
1: She was given the task of cleaning up the old man. And in that process of cleaning him up, she saw a mark on his skin that she knew very well as a mark belonging to her old master, Ulysses. Mm. And so she knows. She knows that it's real, and yet she's got a quandary.
0: Servants don't blab. Not good ones, anyway.
1: Certainly not about things they see when they are bathing their masters.
0: Intimate secrets. You don't tell.
1: And uh, how long is she able to hold on to this?
0: Well, she shares with us that it's hard for her because she knows she should hold on to it forever, but she also knows... Sharing this would bring great comfort to her mistress, who she knows is suffering. So it's hard.
1: And so again, we have a character who is torn between a kind of passion and a desire to be prudent. And how does that work out?
0: It's interesting because Ulysses enters the stage in his true form, no longer looking like an old man, looking like Ulysses at his proper age, in his proper form. And Erycleia says nothing. Penelope remains suspicious. She calls him an enchanter, a magician. Her walls are built high and strong around her to to save her heart, to protect herself, to protect her son. And she will not fall for any of his tricks. She thanks him for getting rid of the pests, the suitors. And Ulysses appreciates her restraint, appreciates her prudence, but he implores her to please believe me, I am that Ulysses risen out of the ashes, survivor of the dead. And she says, you're not the first clever person who with a false name has attempted to gain power over a kingdom. And at this point, Erecleia can't stand it anymore and she cracks.
1: Now it is time to speak. This is Ulysses, chaste and great lady. I recognized him when he came naked to the bath, when scar was uncovered that was caused by the ferocious wild boar.
0: She she begs for pardon. She said, did I keep quiet too long? I i didn't know what to do.
1: <laughs> I was trying to follow the instruction that I was given, yeah.
0: And uh, you know, other men could have scars. You are just like the dear old shepherd, my sweet son. You all could be fooled. My bed is chaste. It's only for my husband Ulysses. I am not going to be fooled, but the mention of the bed makes Ulysses think of something, something that he knows will finally persuade Penelope.
1: And that is to describe the bed, which no one other than him has seen. He says quite boldly for someone who hasn't been around for 20 years. Yes. (laughs) But he's quite confident that no one else has seen it, and he's right. Yes. And he describes the silken cloth woven by her hand with Diana and her virgin companions. And this, finally, amusingly, by invoking the very faithfulness of Penelope herself, is he able to finally convince her. Yes.
0: And now it's Penelope's turn to beg his pardon. Pardon me, my scruples. Place all the blame on Cupid, she says.
1: And he does not hold a grudge. No.
0: He's kind of proud of her, I think.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: So Grant, it's interesting to me that they changed because one of the most memorable parts of the Odyssey is how he finally proves himself to be Odysseus, Ulysses. And it was not this woven cloth. The cloth that I remember her weaving and unweaving was this, this shroud to keep the suitors at bay, not a cloth covering the bed. It was the immovability of the bed that he had built for her that was known just to them.
1: And my guess as to why this has been changed has to do with the way that this version of the story is trying to dwell on her reluctance to believe. And so in this version, he has to be the one to finally convince her. Whereas in the Odyssey, what happens is that she pretends to be convinced. She pretends that she believes that he is Odysseus and says, oh, this is wonderful. Let's just go grab the bed and move it into another place and all will be well. And mm. this upsets and offends him because he knows yeah. that he hewed that bed out of a tree. It is immovable. Sometimes Homer's on the nose of his metaphors, an immovable bed for Ulysses and Penelope. <laughs> In that version, the emphasis is on her craftiness such that the last interaction that they have before they are happily back together is that she outwits him. Mm. However, here, the emphasis is much more on him having to prove himself to her and restore her faith in love.
0: Yes. Well, it's a beautiful image of proof that he conjures up in our minds of this silken cloth that she weaves and he has in his mind all these years that covers their marital bed and he has proven it to her and the way this opera is going to end is between the reunited husband and wife and we're going to end with Penelope and Ulysses singing together my son that I have sighed for my light renewed calm restful harbor desired yes but loved 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 repeated three times and we'll hear Penelope on her own briefly saying that I learned to bless the torments I have suffered and we will finish with the two voices of husband and wife together. And this can easily be staged with just the two of them or with all of the happy court around them. Nevertheless, it is rejoicing and this is joyous music as we get celebration of things being set right with the support of the gods and the conquering hero returning to his homeland and his home. Grant, once again, thank you for joining me on Opera for Everyone and helping me with this wonderful Baroque opera and this wonderful opera based on a classical source.
1: Always a pleasure.
2: Sweet Sister, let piace,
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright.
1: And I'm Grant.
0: If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.
1: Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe opera Opera is is for everyone. everyone.